0: Ecology Systems Limited are the leading provider of radiotherapy ancillary equipment in the UK and Ireland. Serving the community for over 22 years, we pride ourselves on exceptional service and quality products. Please take a moment to visit our website www.osl.uk.com and take a look at our product lines which include Macromedics for patient immobilisation and IBA decimetry for all your radiotherapy quality assurance needs. We are more than happy to take your questions so please do get in touch via our website or email inquiry at osl.uk.com and one of our specialist team will be available to assist you. Hello everyone and welcome to Radchat, the first therapeutic red jog for led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number fifty-six. My name is Naaman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara.
1: Hi everyone
0: a big thank you to our last guest, Dame Laura Lees, uh, who talks about the amazing charity Maggie's and her role as CEO. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go back and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, uh, Dr Hazel Rodham. Um, hi Hazel, how are you?
1: Hello to both of you. I- I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Oh, um, Would you like to introduce yourself, Hazel?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a speech and language therapist. Um, and... I am passionate about working across AHPs and in a moment I'll tell you a little bit about my current role which is working across all the AHP disciplines in England. Um, I started my training as a speech and language therapist 45 years ago this year, which feels quite significant. Any excuse for a party, eh? I've loved my career. I've had lots and lots of variety and When I talk to people at the moment, I'm calling this career hash four. When I look back, I feel like I've had four really distinct phases in my career. So I worked for 25 years as a clinical practitioner. I worked for the NHS, uh, but I also had secondments into uh, local education authorities because my work was very much with young children in special schools, children with severe and complex uh, neurodevelopmental disorders, so movement disorders, sensory impairments, learning difficulties. Uh, so working with them and their families was a big joy and I'd wanted to do that before I started my training. So that was my clinical career. And then um, I'll tell you a bit more about why I made the change in a minute. But I, I changed then into an academic post Um I wasn't driven to, to be a, a teacher per se, I wanted to be in a research role so I'd done my Masters and my PhD while I was still working full time clinically uh, and then was frustrated that I couldn't continue in an active clinical role where I was in the NHS at that, at that point in time. So very reluctantly really I made the change but it was a good change and I my mission was to make bridges between clinical teams and services and people like me. So clinicians at heart and bridge to academic expertise and into the academic world. And I was in that academic post, that research post for 14 years. Really enjoyed that, did lots of different things and uh, had lots of experiences that I wouldn't have had if I'd stayed in the NHS at that point. And then I decided it was time to retire. I, I felt I you know I was getting ready to, to wind down, reduce the hours that I worked and do more things with the family. So two years ago, exactly this month, I took that big step for retirement with a lot of trepidation. I didn't think I was quite ready to finish work completely, but I needed a change. It was time. And of course, COVID had hit and everybody, everything felt different and, and weird. Well, I, I styled myself as an academic consultant and thought, well, I'll see what happens. Uh, in a, I had less than three full weeks of putting my feet up and then the, the calls started coming in and I had a, a rather surprising call from Health Education England inviting me to uh, take on a role to develop a strategy for research and innovation across the allied health professions and that was just too exciting. I couldn't turn that down. So I did that for a year, that was all of last year, on a consultancy basis, so I called that career hash three, and towards the end of the year, I was really hoping that, you know, I might get another sort of consultancy piece of work with them, I'd really enjoyed that, and it was coming to the end, I, I you know, there was a product, there was um, uh, a research and innovation strategy, that I'll talk maybe a little bit more about in detail in a few minutes, but... I got the phone call and they said no we don't want you to do another project so I felt quite deflated and they said we'd like you to come on staff so so here I am career hash four I'm employed full-time again and very very busy but very happy this is what happy hazel looks like I feel like you know I'm very lucky I'm, I'm getting to work on my favorite topic so thanks for asking that's me in a nutshell my uh 45 years since I started training and I'm still very excited about what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. That's a, it's a very long established career. Just kind of take you back, just in case anyone doesn't know, what is a speech and language therapist?
1: Oh, right. Great question. Yeah. So I will say when I started training, there were only four university c- courses doing that. There's over 20 now. So speech and language therapists um, have a broad range of skills, so the undergraduate degree, it was already uh, sort of degree level training back in the 1980s um, and we, we have a mix of medical science, psychological sciences, uh, educational training and we are trained to work cradle to grave really with all types of communication disability um, from premature babies, babies that might have developmental difficulties, school-aged children who might have speech-language communication difficulties or they may have more generalised learning difficulties or craniofacial abnormalities. Then also working with um, adults who might have acquired disorders as a result of illness or injury, uh, traumatic brain injury or more physical injury, people who have lifelong conditions as well, like voice disorders, or fluency disorders, stammering or stuttering, as they call it over the Atlantic. And then there are people with degenerative conditions, often starting later in life, but not necessarily. So multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, motor neuron disease, Alzheimer's and dementias. That obviously impacts very, um, very early on on people's communication um, possibilities. And then we also work with people who have eating, drinking, swallowing disorders. So we work, as I say, across the whole lifespan in different roles at different times. And we work in multidisciplinary contexts and cross sector roles with people in education and in social care and in the criminal justice system. So, I mean, I can talk a little bit more about that if it's interesting to people, but. Children, particularly who have had, um, who have not had early intervention and support for developmental language difficulties, are at an immediate disadvantage of lower educational attainment, uh, poorer social interaction, and very often uh, can lead to mental health difficulties and interaction with the I'll call it the, the criminal justice sector. So we we know that and there have been developments in speech and language therapy to begin since the beginning of my career to work in all these newer areas, um, which weren't really on stream when, when I was doing my training. Another reason that shows why you need to keep yourself up to date professionally, because the landscape changes. Hazel you can tell that
0: you're really passionate about still being an allied health professional and
1: you know all the work that you do around speech and language it's really inspiring and you've obviously now with your your kind of fourth role um, in in health education england can you tell us a little bit about that role and what does a day in your life look like now yeah well the, the first invitation was to write a strategy document and so I said well what is the strategy going to be about? And this it's a strategy for research capacity building across the Allied Health Professions. We're a, a huge collectively, we're a, a huge proportion of the NHS workforce. Um I mean it's quoted as approximately a third. There's over a hundred and eighty thousand of us collectively in the in the workforce. And we make a huge contribution to quality of life for all these families that we serve across all our professions. And we have variable history, legacy of research evidence to support the effective ways in which we work and the ways in which we're able to make differential diagnosis and care management plans, etc. So we have some really great world-leading research across our AHP disciplines but there are other areas, newer, smaller professions who've had less investment historically and who work in uh, sectors further away from medical science, who've had less investment and opportunities for research careers. So the brief was to to write uh, a strategy that would support all the AHP community in all these different job roles and work sectors to become more engaged with the research evidence for their own area of practice, so to use research for evidence-based practice, to contribute outcomes and uh, service evaluation data of what constitutes good practice in the real world, and also to develop research and evaluation and innovation skills, including developing careers and becoming the research and innovation leaders of the future. So the brief Joe was to write a strategy which is a vision statement. We'd never had one before collectively across all our disciplines. We needed a line in the sand to say this is a bold and ambitious vision of where we want to get to. With my history of being involved in research capacity building, especially uh, since I I made that move into the academic post and um, have been very involved in a number of initiatives to drive research capacity building, I could see that over the last few decades we've been inching forward. We were we were making progress. There are lots of things we were proud of in terms of building capacity, skills, confidence, and leadership in research across our disciplines. But we had a long way to go, and there's a risk that we weren't sufficiently visible. We we needed to seize the moment to increase the visibility, the reputation and the value, recognition of the value of allied health professional research. So that's what that job was last year, to write a vision statement. So we've got our vision statements, we've got strategic aims, strategic objectives, and descriptors of what good would look like. And then the real work starts, okay. So that was the fear, the risk, that we'd have a shiny document that didn't make a jot of difference. So that's what I'm doing now. That's my brief now to lead the implementation work towards making that strategy actually happen. (laughs) No small thing. I I deal with this fear, this worry every day. I want to I want to make the best uh, that I can and facilitate other people to carry on this work.
0: So Hazel, for anyone who is maybe still in clinical, treating patients every day, why is research
1: important to them? Well, great question. First of all, this is, there's no agenda at all about a brain drain, getting people to leave clinical practice, workforce, and go and work in universities. That is not what this is about. The whole driver is about improving the quality of the care we offer in frontline clinical services. And we can only do that when we're really confident that these are the best services, the most effective ways of working, uh, and that we're really skilled at measuring, as I said, differential diagnosis. So we need this scientific approach to underpin our practice and to continue into the future to drive the quality of the way that we work. So this isn't just an elitist interest either. We, we can't let the academic community... The researchers do all this for us because they don't see the patients and the families every day of the week. They don't have that deep insight into the priorities of the families that we're working with. What are their values? It's not just about evidence-based practice. It's about values-based practice as well. We need these conversations and we need more than ever before to bring together that expertise that the academic community have in scientific measurement and research designs and innovation processes together with the deep insights and that connection with the families that we work with and that's why the, the, this partnership working between clinical services and teams and the academic teams is crucial and the voice, we call it the public voice, the voice of these service users themselves so it's a genuine partnership between everybody And in some cases, some other stakeholders. Many of our professions work in third sector uh, and we work very closely with other partners who support our work. So it's about uh, embracing and listening to the conversation together.
0: So obviously, people who work clinically, Hazel, uh, we want to get into research like I do. But when do we get the time to do it?
1: Mm, That's a great question. Yes. Okay. I've lived it. I know. And I said I would explain a little bit more about why I had to make the move. I mean, I I had been working full-time in a clinical post. I'd done my master's and my PhD part-time. That's a long haul. Um, I wanted to do it. I, I was driven to do it because all the time I was constantly asking questions. Yes, but is this the best way to work? I was working with these populations of children and their families who had such complex and such severe disabling um challenges to face and realised that there was very, very limited evidence of what's the best way to work. These are very complex cases. Everyone's individual. Everyone's unique. So I was driven by asking questions and realising, frustrated that the evidence wasn't there. I wanted to be involved in helping to generate that to improve the way we worked. But I was in a situation where I was being told, right, well, no, your job is to sign people's travel expense claim forms or you can be a specialist clinician, but you can't be a researcher as well. And so that's why I made the move. But I don't want other people to have to do that. I My aim, my dream is to, to keep people in those clinical services and to we do need to develop ac- academic research leaders, but we need to develop clinical academic roles and opportunities. So you'll be delighted to know there's lots of work going on, lots of work which is uh, been making really good progress in terms of mapping out career frameworks uh, at all stages of the career journey. So there's no expectation that people have to serve your time as a clinical practitioner before you can then um, branch out. Um, it's about mapping research and innovation activities into your career journey throughout the whole of your career um, life but also for those that do want to become more actively more seriously involved in research activities or research and innovation activities that there should be more flexible entry and and exit points so that you can try those roles you can become more involved and those will be supported. So it's been a long time coming and we're doing this work together with nursing and midwifery as well. So it'll be a, a genuine multi-professional framework for more flexible careers and more sustainable and uh, substantive careers. So people aren't in a situation you might have sort of experienced this yourself where you you feel like you're being asked to make a choice. Well. Do I give up my um, salary and my employment security and my pension to go and be a jobbing researcher and get short term contracts on other people's projects? There's there's not a lot of incentive there uh, and we need to retain people's skills and keep the right people driving this agenda forward. So I hope you'll see that. I hope you'll see that change in the decade ahead. It won't happen tomorrow, but we are making really serious progress in this and I'm very happy to to see that starting
0: no it sounds great I think time is always going to be a factor in clinical I think especially at the moment with the I mean for us as therapeutic radiographers trying to you know catch up with extra caseload coming through lack of staff motivation etc but I I mean I, I agree I was introduced to research quite early on in my career um, and it's something that should really drive everyone's clinical practice anyway do you? I mean, what's the importance for all AHPS to, you know, continue?
1: Yeah. Well, there are some quick wins as well. Um, I mean, because it's not it's not one or the other. It's about integrating everything. We also need to think about making more effective and efficient use of our routinely collected data to answer real world clinical questions about how we improve our services, and everyone can do that because we're collecting. Data all through our routine practice, and m- much of it does not get used. There's also <clears throat> there's perceptions, a lot of perceptions about research. The R word is a really tricky, slippery word, and it can be a big barrier. I'm excited about research. I spend a lot of the week talking to other people who are excited about research, and that's fine. We enjoy talking to each other. When I talk to people in frontline clinical posts, I very often get the defensive reaction. You know, the eyes go a bit places. well, that's all right for you because, you know, you're in that role or you like research, but I just want to do my job or I'd like to be involved in research, but it's not possible. I haven't got time and it's not going to happen for me. But that doesn't mean you can't... What we're talking about is not the big R, the, the separate career. Every day, we need to be asking questions. So frontline clinical practitioners... You know, you, we, we all need to raise the questions. What are the priorities facing the people who need our services and the people who are delivering the services? So as a practitioner, like you've just said, what would make your life easier? What do you feel would be a better way to work? And how could we, in a scientific, systematic way, sort of evidence that? How could we test that out? And one other thing I'd like to say really is about research is a game. University Post, and I know this from the inside, it's a big institution for getting papers on your CV. And we have hundreds of thousands of papers in medicine, biomedical science, uh, clinical sciences, published every year, that don't make a jot of difference to real people in real world, not to the families and not to the people delivering services. We need to put more value on using the existing evidence and encouraging very busy clinical practitioners to raise a question about what would be better how could I work better tomorrow next week what do we already know undertaking rapid reviews of the existing evidence uh, I've, I've published lots of different types of reviews from the Cochrane systematic review the gold standard but increasingly trying to encourage people and doing tutorials and writing about how to undertake critically appraised topics, as an example of a um, a rapid review. And these are intended for non-academics. These are intended for clinical practitioners to undertake in a, a number of hours. I mean, we've had our supported groups to, to do this over just a few weeks in very little time, collectively. We share it and... Be able to see what's the bottom line, what's the take-home message for me to change my practice next Monday morning. We have a lot of evidence already that's not being used. And that's something which, as I say, without making a job change or having any external funding or doing anything, we can still improve practice. And you know what? You're also gaining skills and confidence in what you might want to move towards further down the line. And anything that you can publish and disseminate, whether it's just in local trust newsletter or a a specialist clinical interest group with colleagues, get it on your CV. Keep putting what you've done, because when you do feel that you're ready to make a more serious move into a, a more formal research role, you've got a track record. You can say, this isn't just a whim that I dreamt about last night. You can say, look, I've been doing all these things to get myself skilled and experienced, dip my toe in the water.
0: I think the the perception of being a clinical academic as well, in some cases I think it's still a little bit new. Um, some of the traditional viewpoints I think that I've come across is, oh, well, research is more, you know, you do a secondment or that's your full-time post, it's not always embedded into the role clinically.
1: Yeah, it's become a bit of a buzzword these last few years you know clinical academics and uh, it it seems like it, it's the cherry on the cake that you know seems very attractive um and it, it seems to meet what i've been talking about this sort of bringing together the expertise of expertise and insights from the clinical practice side and the academic scientific skills but it's got to be right the contract has got to be right and that's what we're pushing for as well because we know from people's experience that they can feel they're in a situation where they're torn between two masters, they've got two sets of appraisals, two sets of performance objectives, they might feel like a schizophrenic that, you know, on a Monday they're in a clinical role and on a Tuesday they turn up at the university and, you know, stand in, in a classroom or at a desk or whatever. And that's not how it should be. So we've we've been getting some great examples of where it has worked well and we've been uh, looking at publications that people have been uh, putting out internationally to, to gain more insights into what are the ingredients that makes it work well and at a strategic level pushing the message to say this is what we want to see in the infrastructure, in job descriptions, in commissioning um, and the new ICS uh, board, so the, the, the new system uh, for the NHS in England is moving in that direction to, to recognise these roles in a more formal way. So that's what we're pushing for. And yeah, I hope that you'll get to, to see that, that becoming more of a reality.
0: Yeah, it again sounds brilliant. I just I wonder if I take you back a little bit, Hazel, when you were clinical uh, for the first time round, um, did you have kind of mentors or role models who were looking at being clinical academics?
1: It's a good question, but no, I mean, I, I, I go so far back. It really was a, a black and white world. You either worked in a university uh, or you worked in, in clinical practice. And the university post, people thought about going to teach. So you might think, oh, well, I'll be a lecturer. I'll go and teach it. I, I enjoyed teaching and I'd been a guest lecturer, invited to talk on my sort of clinical area uh, at a number of universities over the years while I was still in the NHS, and I enjoyed that, but it wasn't what I wanted to do because it, it didn't hit my passion, my my ambition to to push this message of, of getting partnerships of people working together. However, I have over the years um, been more and more involved in postgraduate education. So right across the spectrum from CPD and workshop things, but but also more formally. So I've had a a lot of invitations to work across mainland Europe as well as in UK. And I was invited a a few years ago to start working with the first state-funded university in Germany for nursing, midwifery and allied health. And that's in the, the northwest of Germany, not far from Dusseldorf. The Hochschule für Gesundheit. Now, they wanted to raise the academic level, they wanted to um, start master's level training for allied health professionals, and so I helped them to develop a curriculum, we validated it, and we graduated our first cohort uh, back in 2018. So, working at that level, I began to think, well, okay, yes, I I really want to get more involved with influencing the career expectations uh, of... The new graduates and new students that you know research could be integrated into their careers, but also influencing the curriculum and the way that we teach research design, not as a separate bolt-on luxury, you know, oh you do your class in that now, but integrated throughout all the clinical training. Um, so I've worked with a number of universities across uh, different uh, mainland European countries. And I've supervised a lot of research interns who've come and joined me when I was in my academic uh, post. Uh, And we have, I mean, the very first two that came were from Turin. Two speech and language therapy new graduates with their bachelor's degree with an interest in eating and swallowing disorders. I was doing some project work with a, a, a national charity who were based locally close to where I was in the northwest of England. Those girls came for two months. They helped to work on this patient-developed survey of their experiences. You'll be very interested in this, everyone, and I have talked about it before at the Radiography Congress. Uh, It was about the side effects, the the impact on them of uh, radiation treatment for head and neck and mouth cancer. So these two girls came across, they helped to work on this, they did the analysis, they did the reporting, We submitted abstracts and we won prizes at ESMO, so the European Society of Medical Oncology, and at the uh, Public Health England Cancer Data and Outcomes uh, Conference that year. And the charity paid for those girls to fly back and present their own work and receive those awards themselves. So I'm just trying to say that and you sort of say, yeah, I've been really, uh, you know, I've I've dabbled in lots of different ways in academic uh, posts in teaching and in research and I think that that is really important. We're working at the moment, I say we, the grand we from Health Education England, working with the Council of Deans for Health to push this message of how we can increase student experience, positive experience of research so it's not seen as a dull subject or something they just have to suffer and get through, but it's integral and and part of all their their training.
0: I think you raised a really good point actually around charity funding. I think lots of people think when they go and get into research or get time to go to a conference, you know they have to get these big grants that take a while to do. But charity funding, I think, I know at the moment it's difficult with the back end of COVID, etc. But that's something that you know you you can get some travel expenses to go to a one-day conference, for example, can't you?
1: Absolutely. Uh, I, I think you know, it's really important. To, it's in our strategy document that we published that we're encouraging people uh, in a strategic way, but, but just to look at the whole spectrum from tiny pockets of seed corn funding that, again, as I said, helps to build your own CV. By doing small things and getting small amounts of money, you then demonstrating that you're getting the skills and the experience and the confidence to start to, to look bigger. No one is ever going to be able to jump straight into winning a massive program grant when you've got no track record. But no one's going to jump straight into a a research fellowship or a, a research career without that initial sort of small steps. And you can't do it on your own and you're not supposed to do it on your own. Make connections, make friends, make links. That's why networks are so important, and that's the benefit of this type of um, podcast format that you're doing. It it enables people to think, they hear voices, they hear uh, advice, and they think, oh, well, that might be useful for me. So what you're doing in this is fabulous because you're helping to spread the word, raise people's interest, get that hook, get them interested, get them talking to each other, and give them somewhere that they can contact, and they say, oh well, I know where I could go, who I could ask, and they'll come to you, won't they? That's great.
0: And they'll probably come to you now as well, then either know you so.
1: Well, I I keep saying this, so everywhere I do a, a presentation, I put my Health Education England email address and my Twitter name, my own personal Twitter account, and just say. To people, please get in touch with me. I want to know what people's questions are, what people's experiences are, any advice they would like to share and any great examples that we can showcase. So next January, we've got a a day on the calendar, which will be our anniversary party, if you like, to celebrate one year since we launched the Allied Health Professionals Research and Innovation Strategy And the implementation work is going to take far longer, but we've got a lot to celebrate. And what I hope to do on that day also is to showcase some examples. We're going to have a virtual poster gallery. It's all online. So we'll have a poster gallery. We'll actually have some uh, recorded and also some live presentations. So everyone, yes, please get in touch with me. It's hazel.rodham at hee.nhs.uk and follow me on Twitter. At Hazel Rodham1.
0: I know you've touched on a few good bits of advice already, Hazel, but what would you say to anyone who wants to be more involved in research at whatever level they are?
1: I think about the so what question. Okay, I mean, especially when I was in my academic role, I would have people knocking on my door every week saying, I think I'd like to do a PhD or I'd like to do a project about this. And will you help me? Or uh, I'd like to apply for this uh, grant so that I can do something. I'd say, well, what is it that you'd like to do? And they said, well, I'm really interested in autism or whatever was their topic. So, well, okay, but what's your question? What do you want to find out that we don't already know? Oh, well, I, I've got lots of experience of working with lots of families, and, and I know I'd like to do a project about this. I said yes, but what? You know, and have you checked to see what already is known? You know, I've talked before about really being sure. Uh, people say, "Well, there's nothing out there." Not, not, not to answer the question that I've got. He said, "Well, have you looked?" And we can help people to look but it is the most important starting point so to convince anyone to take you seriously you've got to have a really sharp and focused question that you've thought a lot about and think about well what's the value of that the so what question what difference would it make to people except you you're interested you you know you'd enjoy doing it do you know what outside of work my big passions are swimming and knitting But if I'd done my PhD about underwater knitting, it would have made me very happy, but it wouldn't have helped anybody else very much. Uh, So this so what question, what difference will it make if you do that project? Um, I think that's important for people to think about. Be able to convince someone why your idea is important, but be able to convince someone that it needs doing, that it's not already been done so you've got to do a bit of homework a bit of groundwork and if if that feels daunting and you're not quite sure no one's asking you to do a systematic review to cochrane standard but you've got to do a little bit of scoping review and if you're not sure how to do it then ask there's lots of people who will be happy to help if they see that you are serious so and that takes time as well i mean my other little bit of advice is give yourself time Um, if you see an advert for a fellowship or a a grant or something you'd like to apply for that's great but a lot of people have come to me and said oh will you help me apply for this I say when's the deadline and they say next Tuesday well people have been polishing their applications for six months or two years or two you know let's be realistic about this I'll help you think through and explore and you know if you really say we can go on a bit further and sort of develop a little bit of a scoping uh, exercise or see what's already out there so be realistic give yourself time and if you've got that burning seed of, of an idea inside you and it, it won't go away and this applies as well to this feeling i think i'd like to do a phd i'd always say well <coughs> why do you want it what difference would it make if you get the phd <coughs> you can improve services and you know do a lot without needing the phd necessarily. But if you do want it, or if you want to do anything, why now? Is is this a good time to embark on it based on what everything else is going going along? Some people get very impatient, oh I've got to do it now. Well, let's take the longer view. You know, I've done many things and I've had many phases in my career, and you can't always do everything instantly, but you can keep building the CV. You can keep gaining knowledge, you can keep gaining skills. Um so yeah that's my advice let keep that idea alive keep talking to people and you'll find people are very generous and helpful if they think you're serious
0: oh that's brilliant advice hazel thank you i remember when i first reached out to a few people about research it was very scary it was taking maybe six or seven drafts of just a very short email thinking oh they're probably never going to reply anyway but then eventually it keeps going and people can be quite supportive even if it is to say well so what why do you want to do this but
1: It's an important question, the so what question. Mm,
0: It's really, really important. But I
1: I will just say, you know, you shouldn't feel daunted. Everyone is ordinary, okay? It doesn't matter what letters they might have after their name or what job they're in now. You run this platform, which is fabulous, and you've generated this this feeling that that people are welcome and that people are talking on on an equal way uh, to each other. So I started back in 2015 the ResNet, so that's Research Support Network. Uh, I called it ResNet SLT only because I liked the acronym of ResNet, for Research Support Network, but it was already taken. So by adding SLT, speech language therapy, on the end, it enabled me to use that little phrase, but it was always been open doors to everybody, and it was intended as a completely free open access resource on a simple blog site where I was putting research information, resources, advice, uh, commentaries, things like that, and inviting people to share their stories of how they'd got to where they were. Very, very equal, very welcoming. And then the following year, Jo Fillingham, that's a name that people will know well, uh, she She was brilliant. So she was a role model, a mentor to me. And she said, you should be on Twitter as well. You should be getting more engagement and more conversation going. So uh, people might be aware, again, that's completely welcoming. And, you know, we have people from all different disciplines and backgrounds joining us when we were doing things online. And then we save the transcripts of those conversations and we post them on the blog site, on the ResNet blog site. So that's there. But that—that that is, the, you know, no barriers to geography, no barriers to discipline, really equal platform. So one of the things that I tried to cultivate was this theme of ask the author. So we would invite people who were published authors to ha- be there and take conversation, take questions and just try to make people feel like you said, Naman, less scared, less daunted. You know what? What makes you rejoice when you've published a paper when someone actually wants to talk to you about it? You know the the biggest disappointment is when it's just like it never happened after all that blood sweat and tears and so ask the author and like you're doing now is breaking down barriers so that people don't need to feel so daunted to make that email. But if you do contact people by email explain why you're asking. Let let them know that you're serious. If you're asking advice or information, say why you're asking and what you're going to do with that advice. You know, are you people will be very generous and very happy to help if you give them a reason to and then don't forget to follow up with a thank you. And that way you begin to develop a bit of a friendship and a relationship as well. You begin to get a bit of backwards and forwards conversation and then maybe because you've contacted them because you're interested in their work and if you've got that shared interest if they're in an academic post in particular they might very well come back to you in the future and say oh well I know you work clinically in this area I wonder if you might be interested in you know joining me in a bit of a a project and we might be able to do some patient recruitment or you might be able to get some patients to help develop Uh, you know a protocol a, a proposal for for a project so we've got that patient service user voice in right from the beginning so don't don't hesitate make friends contact people but but be be very clear about what you're interested in and what you hope for and say thanks
0: oh well thank you hazel that was brilliant it's really really good advice for people listening and i think at any level whether you're an experienced researcher or you're just trying to get into it um, so yeah, th- thank you everyone for listening to RadChat. Um, your hosts today have been Naaman Joel Canderson and Joe McNamara. Um, if you're using this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted uh, along with links to resources and literature and we'll make sure we put Hazel's email address in, in the notes as well so it's easier for people to find. Um, to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked for the podcast. Yes, Hazel, you've got your hand up. <laughs>
1: Okay, yes, yes. Well, I just wanted to say, I will put, I'll I'll give you the link so you can add it in, of where people can find the strategy document online easily, so they don't need to hunt and search around for ages. But I'll also put the link to my ResNet, Research Support Network, where I did a blog piece, where it gives a really simple one-page summary of the document and the implementation work that people can download, and a sub-five-minute YouTube video of me saying what, what's the strategy all about and why is it relevant for people in clinical practice. So you can make a cup of tea, listen to that YouTube video, and you'll have finished listening to the YouTube before you finish your brew. And I'm just asking people to share it, share the link, because we're all trying to share the message. Unless we could be brilliant, all of us, but if nobody knows about it we're reducing the chance of making an impact so let's be let's spread the word and tell people about it and thank you for letting me chatter tonight it's been lovely talking to you too
0: that's okay um thank you very much we'll definitely link everything in thank you all for listening to RadChat. your host today have been neyman joel and joe mcnamara a huge thank you again to our guest dr Raza rodham if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted, along with the links to resources and literature we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form link to the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Dr. Rachel Harris. Uh, she will be discussing her career and the role of research, along with what the nation's voice is so important. And thank you all for listening.